As we return to 1 Corinthians and pick up chapter 10, it almost seems like Paul has totally changed the subject. In chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul has been dealing with the utter selfishness of the Corinthian Christians, fed by their overweening pride when Christians should be by their new nature, the humblest of all spirits in the world. They're arrogant about their knowledge, they're arrogant about their cliques, they're proud about their rights, and they're not afraid to demand and assert them, even at the cost of their fellow Christians, even the weakest of them. Not content merely to rebuke them, Paul draws lessons from his own example of humility, of humble service, even at the cost, as he did and willingly spent it, of his own Writes, free from all, he has made himself a slave to all in order to win some for the gospel. And this Christian life he has described, as we've seen over these past couple of weeks, providentially timed for us in terms of athletic games, running and fighting and boxing for the prize, disciplining our bodies and keeping them under control. Now, in what seems like a jarring turn, he is off to the uh, Israelites under Moses. Suddenly he's talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the change of chapter number only helps to underscore in our minds uh, the seeming disjointedness of the text. But, but of course, Paul would not recognize chapter and verse numbers and never seen such things attached to his letters. It was much later that they were added. And he himself demonstrates that he's continuing his argument, fertile as his mind may be, flashing from one thought to another, even across centuries, even across epochs, as it does from the Isthmian and Olympian games and arena to the Red Sea, by the fact that he uses in verse 1 the word for. He's simply continuing his argument. Well, God grant us the grace to keep up, even if breathlessly with this running apostle. Let's pray. Father, we must have your help and your blessing. We must have the Holy Spirit if we're going to understand. And Father, we want so much more than that to apply and to live according to your word. So send him, we pray, mightily to do this work in us now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10. The first four verses. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. To understand how far one has to fall, it's imperative first to know the heights to which one has risen. To grasp how much one has to lose, one has first to understand how much one has been given. It seems that the Corinthian Christians did not understand how privileged, how spiritually privileged they were. But then God's people rarely do grasp the benefits they have received in Christ, the blessing that is theirs, and alas, all too often understand the magnitude of God's graces to them only when they have played fast and loose with them. 
or exchange them for a mess of pottage. To help the Christians at Corinth to understand what they had been given and what they stood to lose, Paul draws an immediate parallel for them by turning their eyes back to their spiritual fathers. How terribly they fell, didn't they, after the exodus from Egypt, after being baptized under the leadership of Moses under the cloud and in the sea, led by the cloud by day and pillar of fire by night and bound to the promised land. Who would have dreamed the day that they passed through the sea on dry ground and over the course of the next 40 years, their bodies would be strewn across, would litter the wilderness and their souls populate hell. They'd been gone so well. From the starting line, like our American men's Olympic team so disappointingly was on Friday evening. They, they started well, but were disqualified for the prize even while they were in the race. Would the Corinthian Christians suffer the same fate as their own, as the result of their own flirtation with, indeed their own foray into sin? I want to come back to that question next week because as I, as I say, one first has to understand how far one has to fall by understanding the heights to which one has risen. To grasp how much one has to lose, one has first to understand how much he's been given. Our spiritual fathers were given much. The Christians at Corinth were given much. And even this morning in the sanctuaries we just witnessed, as we'll experience again at the table, as we're experiencing right now in the Word, we have been given much. Just how much? That's what we consider today, because that, Paul says, is the first thing that we must not be unaware of. The first thing that we must not be unaware of is that we are spiritual progeny. That is, we are spiritual offspring, spiritual children, descendants in a church family that goes back not merely hundreds of years, but thousands of years. We trace our lineage back not just to the book of Acts, but to the book of Exodus and, and to the book of Genesis and to the events that are recorded there. Young John Burkett, by virtue of his baptism into the family of God today, traces his spiritual roots, his spiritual family tree, back through a group of people who stood one day on the bank of the Red Sea, pinned by the Egyptians behind them, murderous and vicious. And even back further than that, to a man who with his wife, named Sarai, centuries before, also found himself in this vicinity. John Owen Burkett II's father, Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. You may remember singing those words in Sunday school, like, like I do with your Sunday school classmates, why was it such a matter of, of praise to us children and still now to us as adults that we are children of Abraham? Because of the privileged place and position that the spiritual progeny possess in God's plan, that we've been grafted into the tree, 
You know, of old, God's elect people consisted of one nation, one nation, the Jews. But now, as Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, we, we Gentiles, have been grafted into that tree. We've been brought into the covenant that God made with Abraham so that we too are called in Scripture by Paul the children of our father Abraham. We are those offspring that God described to Abraham in his covenant. Do you remember this? The nations, he said. Your offspring that will be more numerous than the sands and the sea or the stars in the sky. That's us. That's you and me. The same covenant, the covenant that God made, says he made with a thousand generations, an everlasting covenant. That is the covenant he is renewing with us right here, right now, in this worship service today. God is grafted, we've watched this morning, another covenant child into this tree. That thought may not thrill us this morning that we're part of this tree, but it, it should. It's, it's high privilege for us as members of the Christian church today to be the spiritual progeny of ancient men and women, boys and girls who lived on the other side of the world, God's chosen people, for that is what we are. And that being the case, there is a continuity. There is a covenant continuation that transcends what we sometimes and artificially, frankly, call the Old Testament and the New Testament. One covenant of grace sweeps us and our children up into its mighty current, which covenant waters have been flowing ever since it started as a rivulet in the Garden of Eden. And then began expanding its banks in Genesis 3.15 when God promised Eve that from her offspring, from her seed, would come one who would crush Satan's head and which continued to grow into a mighty river until it exploded at Pentecost. That's our heritage, my brothers and sisters. We are not a New Testament Church. The church at Corinth was not a New Testament church. They would never even have dreamed of calling themselves a New Testament church. Nor would the church at Philippi or Galatia or Colossae or Rome. Their Bible, like Jesus' Bible, like Paul's Bible, consisted of 39 books. That began with Genesis and ended with Malachi. When they wanted to read about their place, about their position, about their identity in these Gentile churches, when they wanted to know about themselves, where they fit in God's kingdom, whose progeny, whose children, whose descendants they were, they read the same passages in Genesis 17 and in Acts 14 as the Jews did, as the Jewish Christians did as we do today. They rejoice to be the children of Abraham, to be grafted into the God's covenant tree that Paul could write to them, as he does here, about their fathers. Write to these Gentiles and say, these are your fathers. They stood at the sea. They passed through the sea on dry ground while God held back the Egyptian army with a wall of impenetrable fire. 
As I teach Bible studies in the community, week by week, it amazes me. And it so disheartens me sometimes, frankly. Dear people who grew up in the church speaking of our place, of our position in God's kingdom as, as, as plan B. In ancient Israel, they've been taught to believe was God's plan A. But, but then when plan A fell through, when God's original plan failed, he scrambled, God did, and switched to plan B, which is us, the Gentiles. But if you will actually read God's plan in the Bible, you will find nothing could be further from the truth, that it had always been God's plan to include all nations. Read God's covenant with Abraham. Go back this afternoon and read it again. Read the prophet Isaiah. Read the Psalms. God is still on plan A. He's still on plan A, which is to save a people for himself the very same way today as he did back then. Indeed, the only way that anyone has ever, is or ever shall be saved, and that is through Christ. And through Christ alone. Who was with the people of God of old as they made their way through the wilderness from Egypt to the promised land? Did you catch that? Verse 3. All ate the same spiritual food, all ate, drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. You see, there's always been just one plan of salvation, one single plan of one way of salvation for God's people all along, all these millennia. One Christ, one Savior. Even as God's people were slaying animals on the altar, on those altars of old, they were saved through the one who was slain on the cross. They looked ahead to Christ, just as we look back to Christ. Not now through an altar dripping with blood, but a table flowing with wine. His sacrifice on the cross reached back to take hold of them, just as it reaches ahead to take hold of us. Our pilgrim fathers, according to Paul, fed on Christ by faith through the spiritual food, just as we do through spiritual food here today as pilgrims on on our way in a, in a weary land, feeding on Christ, drinking Christ through spiritual food and drink at the table. These are not different plans, you see. These are different perspectives. But it's the same plan. The same covenant God who covenants with us in Christ Jesus to be our Savior and the Savior of our children he is the same one who covenanted with our fathers of old. We and our fathers who cross the sea on dry ground eat the same spiritual food. We drank the same spiritual drink from the same spiritual rock. And that rock is Christ. Which leads me to a second point of privilege. And that is the presence of Christ with us. Just as he was with our fathers. What is this cloud that we read about in, in verse 1? It's Christ, the Lord. Remember the presence of the Lord 
with God's people. In Exodus 13, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night as a pillar of fire. Now, it doesn't take a whole lot of study to figure out that of the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, this is the Son. Yahweh is God the Son. It is Christ who was with them. He who delivered his law, my law, my commandments, as Jesus called Jesus the I am, calls them. What Jesus says to us, lo, I am with you always, he's not offering us something new. It's not something novel, something only we get to enjoy today or in this epoch. He's offering us what is, of course, it's ever wonderful. I'm not denying that. Of course it is. But he's simply continuing to be to us today what he was to our fathers of old. A constant presence, comforting, guiding, protecting. How dramatically that that presence was displayed, wasn't it? And seen and felt and experienced the day that the Lord delivered them through the, the, the sea. Remember how by his presence the Lord protected our fathers from the Egyptian army, placing himself between the two as a, as a great fire, lighting up the night, lest one single Egyptian should make his way to that camp or one sleepwalking Israelite accidentally wander into the other. And not only was the present Christ their protection as he is our protection, but he is, is and was and is to us their provision and ours too. He, the spiritual rock, verse 4, went with them, so they lacked nothing. Should we imagine from Jewish folklore a, a literal rock, you know, sort of rolling along or dragging with them along through the wilderness? Probably not. Paul says he was their spiritual rock. And he's still our spiritual rock, isn't he? Our rock and our salvation. Just as he was to our fathers back then. This is what has distinguished the people of God from, from everyone else. Has always been the thing that marked us out as separate from, from everyone else. Simply this. God in our midst. God with us. The I am with you, Christ, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isn't that marvelous to know? That's something to revel in, my brothers and sisters. I am with you. God is always with us. As the psalmist put it, his own experience, he hems us in behind and before. He lays his hand upon us, his, his right hand always holding us. There's nowhere we can flee from his spirit. Nowhere we can flee from his presence. Not in the heavens, not in the grave, not in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there his hand leads us, his right hand holds us. For he knitted us together in our mother's wombs. Some of us more recently than others. He is present with his progeny, with his children, with us, according to his promise, which is just, just exactly what he was with our fathers at the sea and in the wilderness, which leads me to our third point of privilege, the promises. 
This we see in verses 2 through 4, which Bible scholars of all stripes and denomination agree is Paul speaking of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The sacraments, ordinances, whatever, no word is really good for this, but whatever you want to call them, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Now, of course, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to see that that's the case because you can simply read on in chapters 10 and 11 and know that this is where Paul is going. Our fathers were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. But they were baptized into Moses, you say. So we're talking about a totally different baptism from ours. Well, not so fast. Moses was a type of Christ. Moses was a, a foreshadowing, a prefiguring of Christ. He pointed to Christ. He was the picture of Christ. He's the ultimate Old Testament picture of Christ. And more than that, under Moses' leadership, as Paul points out in verse 4, they drank of Christ. Moses brought these people to Christ. Here's Paul linking the past to the present, projecting the, the Christian meaning of baptism into Christ, an expression, by the way, he uses a couple of times in Romans and, and Galatians, projecting, I say, that onto the Exodus. Just as God's people were in a nation under Moses, its covenant leader and mediator, so we, you and I, are incorporated into Christ, who is our spiritual head. So there's a whole lot for us to learn from this ancient baptism about our baptism. Just as there is much we can learn from the sacraments of the Old Testament, circumcision and Passover, of that former epoch for understanding and receiving the sacraments of baptism in the Lord's Supper today. Whatever the specific sacrament you're considering, this, this is the point. God gives us the sacraments, both of which we're observing this morning. Baptism in the Lord's Supper is signs and as seals of His covenant with us. In other words, unsatisfied to give us the word alone, his written promises, as if that were not enough, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, your sins I forgive, and wash them away, wash them white as snow, I am with you, I have set you apart, I've made you holy, and so on. I say as if that were not enough, if it were not enough for him to tell us in writing, he sets his seal, his seals on those promises in the form of water and of bread and of wine. Isn't that marvelous? See, God knows our weaknesses. He knows our, our frailty. Didn't we start by singing with the psalmist just exactly that this morning? Our propensity to doubt His promises, to question His grace to us. And so God condescends to our level, and he gives us signs and seals that we can touch and see and smell and taste. And through them, just as he does through his word, same message, same truth, same promises, he confers this grace to us to the confirmation of our consciences 
and the comfort of our hearts. With these sacraments, he sets us apart, he, just as he set our fathers apart at Egypt by the sea. He not only separates us from the world at our baptism, but he separates us to himself. He identifies us with himself under his protection, under his provision of peculiar people who belong visibly to him, visibly because we are marked and, and sealed with water and bread and wine. And here's the marvelous thing setting us apart. He sets also our children apart. This has always been God's way. God's grace is not only to us, as God says, his righteousness is to children and to children's children as well. Throughout all of Scripture, God's grace runs down the lines of generations. And that's why the signs and seals follow. Down the lines of generations as well. Who was baptized in the sea? The Israelites, you say. Which ones? The old ones? The adults, the children, those who consciously professed faith in the one true God, all of them, all of them, even their infants. Verse 2, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. All. Now here on this last point, of course, are some of our Christian friends are of differing conviction and disagree with us on this point, and I do, by the way, deliberately call them our friends. For they truly are. In fact, they are some of my personal closest friends. But they disagree with us on this point of God's gracious intention for the children of believers, their inclusion in the covenant of, of grace, and therefore their participation in this covenant sign, as we've seen this morning. That changed, they argue, with the coming of Christ. The children of believers who were once included in the covenant when Christ came now were excluded from the covenant. Now they are not to receive the signs and seals of the covenant as they did of old. In other words, they are not to receive, receive baptism as they once formally received the sign of circumcision in their infancy. They have the right to believe this, of course, and they argue their point from biblical grounds. But we have a difficult time for seeing how that could possibly be an improvement. <laughs> how this could be an improvement over uh, what they call the Old Covenant. It's hard to, to imagine a first century Jew whose children had been included in the covenant with them up to the point that Christ came, finding Christ to be a better offer if now their children were suddenly excluded. No longer covenant children, displaced from the church of which they had been members because Christ came. At any rate, we don't see any indication of such a change in the Scripture. 
In fact, we're utterly unsurprised, as I mentioned, to hear Paul say, even after Christ's ascension into heaven, that the promise continues not only to us, but to our children, too. Now, the existence of this disagreement within the church between us and our dear friends grieves us as much as it grieves them. And you know it exists even within this congregation and within the membership of this congregation, and that's fine. We don't require you to subscribe to Covenant Succession to be a member in good standing of this church. I love that, by the way. I love it that we can worship side by side, live and serve side by side, and yet hold these differing convictions even in a single congregation. I count that God's blessing. But it's also okay, my dear Baptist friend, my dear Baptist pastor friend assures me with a pat on on my back. He says, because our struggle is only temporary. For when we get to heaven, he tells me, we'll all be Baptists. (laughs) That's not our only intramural struggle in the church when it comes to baptism, you know. While we're content to baptize by effusion, by pouring, by sprinkling, whatever you want to call it, for reasons we find biblical. We didn't come to this out of our, out of the air between our ears. Uh, we believe this because we find it biblical. Is we, we find it to be as, as faithful as immersion. And we've done it both ways in this church. I've immersed some of you. Some of our brethren insist that immersion uh, is the only right way. Refuse to acknowledge any other baptism as valid. And so I remind my dear Baptist pastor friend on this point that when they were baptized in the cloud and the sea, our fathers may have gotten a little sprinkle on the head, but it was the Egyptians who were immersed. (laughs) In all seriousness, ours is a privileged place, dear flock. Whatever our differences of secondary importance, and those are, we are the children of Abraham, the progeny of our spiritual fathers, graced with the presence of the divine who is always, always with us, inheritors of the promises of the covenant that are conferred and sealed to us in these sacraments. And we, in turn, must raise a generation of Christians in the nurture and admonition of the Lord to receive these same immense privileges, grasping them in the only way they can be received. And that is by grace through faith in Christ. And to grow into their baptism and in turn to teach these things to generations yet unborn. What great privileges. My brothers and sisters, what amazing privileges are ours. But with great privileges, which we shall see, Lord willing, next week, my brothers and sisters, with great privileges come great responsibilities. Amen.